0: Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! And welcome to the show, Mr. Jim Zumbo. Gentlemen, I am pleased to be here, and I use that term loosely when I say gentlemen.
1: (laughs) Al Winder. Just want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to hang out with us on a podcast for a little bit.
2: I am looking forward to it. Nothing makes me happier than a colt in Minnesota. If I can't be out fishing, I should be talking about fishing.
0: (laughs) Hailing from Wisconsin, Jana Waller
2: thank you so much for
1: having me it's Redcast, hunting fishing and everything in between powered by bow spider brought to you by pk lures and high mountain seasonings and now here's your hosts patrick edwards and david merrill Welcome to another episode of RagCast Outdoors, everyone. It's good to be back in the studio, isn't it, David? I told everybody last episode that you'd be here this episode. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's back. awesome
0: that you're here. So,
1: No, it's good to be back, and it's, it's always fun to do some of these fall episodes kind of when, you know, things are slowing a little bit down with hunting. I know you've been out quite a bit, and I had an impromptu sort of hunting experience this morning, but things are kind of slowing down a little bit, and we have a little bit more time, hopefully, to get a few more of these episodes going and a few more recorded. And that brings me to today's episode, because it was kind of a long time in the making, and and it's no one's fault. It's just everyone's so dang busy. I know I've been traveling, you've been traveling, our guest has been traveling, travels all the time. Uh, but I was talking to Bill Siemantel just about, I don't know, a year ago, and I said, I want to have this person on the podcast. Do you happen to have a connection? Could you help me out? And he reached out to her, and she was willing to come on. So our guest today is the 2023 Sportsman of the Year for the Kayak Bass Fishing Circuit, which is a big deal. I think she's one of the best fishermen out there, period. And I'm a little biased because she likes to catch muskies, and I think that that's super cool. But Christine Fisher, welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have you.
2: Uh, it's, it's awesome to finally make this happen. I know it's been kind of a long time coming and a lot of back and forth, and <laughs> I'm just very grateful that y'all were patient with my schedule.
1: Oh, man, it was mine, too. It was like, oh, guess what? I had a root canal. Oh, guess what? I had this. I had that. This. It's been one of those years where it's just been kind of wild. And I mean, you just had to have surgery, too. So, I mean, it's just like, man, one thing after another, isn't it? It doesn't stop. It never does. <laughs> first things first. I have to ask you about this because I mean, you're from Nebraska, Nebraska and Wyoming, I think are sleeper States when it comes to fishing, you know, everybody knows and about hunting. Yeah. And hunting, but like,
2: and hunting for, yeah. yeah,
1: it's like, I tell people I'm going to Nebraska for like this really cool fishing trip. And they look at me like I'm nuts. And I'm like, that's okay. You don't have to know that they have some of the best fishing that there is. Now, I'll give you an example. This There was a place that I went in western Nebraska, up in the Sand Hills. It's called Merritt Reservoir. It's one of my favorite all-time fisheries. It's got gigantic musky, northern pike, some of the biggest channel catfish anywhere. I mean, even putting it up against the Red River, I mean, it's insane the size of the channel cats that come out of there. And one day I went out there with my dad. First thing in the morning, we caught... I think it was four channel cats over 30 inches. <laughs> that was really fun. Cause they pull really hard. I had a huge muskie follow me in. That was probably a 50, 50 and a half, you know, somewhere in there. This was, this was a while back, but I mean, got my heart pumping. Then I went and caught 10 inch bluegills. So talk to me a little bit about growing up in Nebraska and some of the fishing and hunting you did growing up, because I'm sure it was epic.
2: You know, it's funny you say that because Nebraska is a bit of a sleeper state when it comes to the fishing. The hunting, I'm not so sure. I've seen more out-of-state hunters the last decade that I've, uh, it's kind of insane on the antelope hunts. But anyway, yeah, in regards to the fishing, you know, strangely enough, of course, I did a lot of the uh, you know the Nebraska farm pond stuff. My family's got a farm pond, so I did a lot of the fishing Out of farm ponds but where i really cut my teeth and got the itch for fishing was on our family vacations up to the boundary waters so that's where i really dove in you know we were a big walleye northern pike perch family didn't really do much bass fishing you know we were we we like getting the the walleye and the perch for eating and then you know always like to catch the northern because i like to cast for them when i was a kid But around Nebraska, you know, I grew up fishing our city, our little small town city lake, and we have a creek that runs through town. So we did a lot of catfish and carp fishing there. My grandpa would take us carp fishing literally every single Sunday, he'd make his homemade dough ball. And we'd go down and fish. And that was literally what we did. We'd have pancakes and go to church and go fishing. So it was, you know, a pretty big part of my upbringing. I was your textbook tomboy, I was pretty much raised outdoors, which I could not not be more thankful for. It it fostered my love for the outdoors and is largely due to where I am now, which is is pretty cool. But I did not do a ton of hunting growing up at all. My grandpa hunted when he was a boy. My dad did a little bit of hunting. We are such a huge fishing family that I didn't really get into hunting until about, oh gosh, probably 12 years ago now when I started working at Shields which is a Midwestern outdoor sporting goods store. And I started working in the archery department, fishing and hunting department, selling all of that. That's what I kind of got into that pretty heavy bow hunting on my own.
0: You mentioned Shields. They're actually one of Bow Spiders' sellers, retailers. They're they're a great corporation, great stores. I really like all our mom and pop shops for sure. Uh, Shields, when you go into one though, compared to the other big box stores, somebody's there to greet you. Somebody's there. What can I help you with? You know, you walk around... I'm not going to name them, but some of the other big box stores, you can wander around all day with the ammo or the broadheads or the, you know, camo and hey, can do we have a different size? And you can't even find an associate to help you. Shields, they people seem to really enjoy their job that that member owned program that they're doing. This isn't a plug for them, but they, <laughs> they move some products for us in their archery departments. Those guys are really, they they do have some knowledge and some skills.
2: They do. They take a lot of pride in, in the employee training there. You know, we did the big shields universities. So I got to go and mountain bike with Joe Breeze, one of the founders of mountain biking. I got to go to an archery university. I got to hear Josh Douglas talk about uh, bass and walleye fishing at one of the big universities. So they're making sure that we're qualified and that we actually know how to answer the questions. And that's where actually where I was the only female at the time company wide up in hard goods out of all the stores. I was just, just me. So That is kind of where I think I really learned how to kind of weather being in a male-dominated area, and it really set me up to be successful where I'm at now. So I'm very grateful for my time at Shields. I love those guys. love those people. I wasn't wired for a corporate job. I knew that wasn't going to be a forever place for me, but I'm so thankful for where I had it in my journey.
0: Those soft skills that you picked up and learned, and I've noticed that in our little business is my wife will come sell and all sell and there's certain demographics and clientele that she can't really convert a sale with but on the other hand the adult onset female hunters that are coming in bow hunters they just gravitate to her and it's like oh you're telling me to use this you use it that demographic a female salesman can be much more successful in with
1: yeah your wife would beat me all day on that one (laughs) but i mean it is something to be said for that there's a lot more women coming into fishing and hunting, you know, kind of the adult onset. We've got a lot of people here in Wyoming. They're like, yeah, my, my dad always used to go and I never got to go, or my husband goes and now I'm starting to go. And so we're seeing a lot more women come into the sport, which I think is very exciting. And I know from following you on social media, a lot of people are following you and they're seeing what you're doing and that's been inspirational for them. Can you talk a little bit about that as kind of your journey into that world of tournament fishing. Cause I mean, it's, it's a wild, wild place. It's not a place I want to be, but it's a really cool <laughs> place. And just kind of what that journey has been like and how you've been in, able to inspire others.
2: Yeah. The tournament side, you know, I've, I've always been very competitive. I played all the sports as a kid and into high school and played college volleyball as well. So I've been a very highly competitive person. And when I found out, you know, back then we didn't in the Midwest y'all probably know this we don't have high school bass fishing around here like they do down the south they have they're so far uh advanced down there when it comes to their getting their youth into the competitive side of things and when I was coming up we didn't even have bass fishing in college at that time Nebraska didn't have a college fishing program so it's just fascinating to see kind of where that has gone but for me when I learned about, I, I saw a flyer for a local kayak fishing tournament. Yeah, when I was actually working on a customer's bow, I think it blew up, and I was restringing it and everything. Uh, that flyer brought in, and I was like, "Wow, I didn't even know that kayak fishing tournaments were even a thing." So, that was kind of my soft launch into competitive kayak fishing, some of the grassroots stuff. And you know, the really neat thing about it is that my journey and my goals and my perspective has has been shaped. Over the last, I've done this for seven years now, I think six or seven years, and it's really neat to see kind of how far I've come and how my goals, you know, like you said this year, I I was sportsman of the year and that to me was a bigger accomplishment than winning our, our version of the Bassmaster Classic, which I won two years ago. It just shows that, you know, my goals of, instead of focusing so much on winning, because I did that a lot in my first few years, I won a ton of tournaments, was very successful. I wanted to shift that focus into inspiring others to get outdoors, to, you know, truly find their joy, find their purpose, put the screens down, reconnect with family and friends, and just get back to, you know, God and the outdoors and these good values that I think our country so desperately needs right now. And, you know, positivity and lifting up social media, where it's, you know, it can be a pretty dark place for a lot of people sometimes. And so I thought that by sharing my journey and being very vulnerable and transparent and just trying really hard to help others, you know, when they enter this, these higher level kayak fishing tournaments, helping them feel more welcome, helping them feel like they can compete, helping them out. if They're struggling on the water. That kind of became more my focus the last couple of years than being ultra, ultra, ultra cutthroat competitive and trying to win every single tournament, which I still want to win, but I can tell I've, I've I've gotten a little, a uh, little more lax the last couple of years.
1: What do you think's kind of gotten you to that point? I mean, has it just been, it's like, all right, I've been successful at this and now you're starting to see, well, maybe I can make a difference in this angler's journey.
2: Bat, absolutely. You know, I've had, I've been fortunate, you know, in the, at least in the kayak space, I've, I've really accomplished everything that there is to accomplish. I've, I've won everything I can win. So I I really want to share that success with others and help them kind of realize their their passion for the sport. And you know, my next goal, whether I choose to do it or not, will probably be jumping in the bass boat and entering some of the Bassmaster Opens and taking it. You know, finally making maybe making that next step in my career, um, which will require a very high level of competition again. So I have to think about that. It's something I've been thinking about pretty hard for the last the last couple months. Um, but yeah, it's just that I want to share all that success and just that joy and that passion with others. And we have such a good community. And like I said, I've experienced a lot of a lot of negativity lately, a lot of tearing down and a lot of drama. And it's so crazy to think that there's room for drama in a in a sport that, such as fishing or hunting where so many of us come here for refuge so I was like man i don't i can't believe some of this stuff is going on there's so much division out there how how are we making a space for it here in this this place that you know it is literally you can't find anything wrong with anything what we do so i want to try really hard to be a best the best leader that i can and sometimes being the best leader doesn't mean being the best competitor if that makes sense
1: it does make sense because i mean people see your example and they'll either feed off of that or they won't. Right. So like I always tell Definitely. people, you know, if you're a really positive person, you tend to bring other people along in a positive way. If you're a really negative person, you tend to bring everybody down to a negative place. And so it's like, it's really up to each one of us as an individual. And I'm sure with, with tournament fishing, cause there are those highs and those lows. And it's like, it's, it can be super bumpy. I'm, I'm sure it's hard to keep like an even keel and just kind of be on the level for the whole time because emotions go all over the place during a tournament, right?
2: Oh, they absolutely can. Yeah. The, the, one of the, the best, uh, the most valuable pieces of advice that I've ever taken from anybody, one of my mentors in the space was regardless if you win the biggest tournament ever or you absolutely tank and you, you zero, you need to stay right here. You know, you need to make sure that you don't stay up here for too long because if you come up here, you just fall even harder, you know? So I try, I've tried to really cultivate this very even keeled mindset throughout my competitive landscape. And it's, it's been very beneficial just in my, just in staying positive and staying grounded and staying focused, not to get too high. And that way you don't get too low because I am a person that likes to live up here. You know, I have a very... Elevated sense of life that I, I like. I'm an adrenaline junkie. I I like. I'm an out of the box everything thinker. So I I like to live, you know, pretty big and and do things pretty crazy. But through all of that, I try to stay kind of right here mentally. So
0: I was going to add on to that and kind of ask a question, but you've sparked an intriguing thought. I read a little bit about Michael Jordan and Carl Malone. They would never celebrate very long on a win. They're always back to practice. There's always that next game. There's always that next tournament. Yeah, you won the last one, but you're only as good as your, your next game, not your last game. Right? Absolutely. So, and they talked about that. not over. You know, it's okay to celebrate. It's okay to be like, to, to go here a little bit, but you got to come back down to reality and and get back to work. So I I have a question about tournament kayak fishing. What percent of it to be successful is gear versus mentality, right?
2: You know, I would say that a couple of years ago, it was probably dang near 90% mentality. Obviously with the advancements and forward-facing sonar and electronics that does, even in our kayak fishing tournaments, most everybody has it and it it does, it does make a difference. But I truly believe that your heart and your mentality and your time on the water is going to trump everything. We still have guys that are paddling. That will paddle. You know, we do pedal drive kayaks with motors and all this super fancy stuff now. And we still have competitors that, you know, will go out there with one or two rods and they they stick to what they're good with and they're very strong with it here and they know what they're good at and they'll still go out there and, and be as consistent as the person with, you know, the the ten thousand fifteen thousand dollar rig, you know, with two graphs and live scope and fifteen rods. So I believe that you know, our gear, it's it's tools, right? And we need to, but we need to understand those tools. We need to understand when to incorporate them, how to use them, how to leverage them, but also how to use our intuition as well. So I I would take a very strong, and then like you said, uh, emotionally and your mentality on the water, I've seen some of the best anglers in the world and in the game completely destroy themselves mentally. And count themselves out of it before it even started. So I would take someone that's more headstrong and had more heart than over over somebody that had the best best gear by far.
1: Yeah, I was talking to Tim Jenny. He was on our podcast. He works for PK Lures, but he's also a big walleye tournament angler up in Saskatchewan. And he talked about that. He said you can be going into the final day and be down by a bunch, but you got to go into it like you're going to win it, right? Like like you got to have confidence that whatever you're throwing and whatever game plan you've put together for that day is going to actually catch you up and is going to help you win. And he's won a bunch of tournaments. He's in the Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame. But it's because that mentality that you talked about, he has extreme mental toughness. He's been behind. He's come from behind in one. And one of the, one of the interesting things about him, and I'm guessing you and others, I know my fishing mentor was this way. There were always, if if you had a game plan and you had it narrowed down to, I'm going to fish this way, I'm going to really work this today. You go out and you execute it 100%. And if you're focused and you're executing 100%, you're probably going to do really well, but if you keep second guessing yourself, keep changing stuff, keep changing locations, you spend your whole day running and it really doesn't help you put fish in the boat. And so a lot of anglers, especially like you, you know, I look at, um, some of the most successful, they know what they know, right? Like they, they know what to do it's just execution and and really it comes down to, can you execute? So like when you're in one of these tournaments, I I really wanted to ask you this one because it it can be really hard, right? And sometimes the fish just aren't playing, right? So you're doing a lot of bass fishing tournaments. What is your go-to when you're just like, man, I have got to get something in the boat. I got to get this done. I got, I got to get a fish in the net. What is kind of your go-to, you know, like, what kind of area are you looking for, especially if you're fishing, like, maybe it's a, a, a lake system with maybe some rivers coming into it. You know, what? what is kind of your go-to to, to kind of turn things around?
2: So, my my strength, I think, is I, I do really read moving water very well, and I fish current very well. So, anytime I can put myself in situations where I've got some current or, you know, I'm a shallow water power fisherman, I really love flipping shallow cover flipping wood, uh, you know, fish and grass flipping grass that if I have a lake that suits my strengths, I feel very confident. And, you know, when that sun gets up late in the day, I'll go and run shady banks with a buzz bait all day long if the, if it calls for it, you know, and I'll feel, I'll lock that thing in my hands and know that I'm going to get the right bites if I need a couple of them. Um, if I, if I'm really struggling, I don't have a fish in the boat. It really depends because our schedule is, is so kind of crazy, but if I can get in a, in a Creek somewhere where, you know, there's good, that the water's just right. You can know, just get into an area and you can just kind of feel that it's, it's got some life. You know what I mean? You know, I, I, there's a lot of dead water in a lot of these fisheries and I just kind of will keep running and keep moving until I find an area where I can just tell there's some life there and there's stuff going on. And then I'll, you know, pick up a, a swim jig or a buzz bait or a, you know, flip a stick bait or something like that just to start getting bit and get some confidence going. And um, I just look for water that suits my strengths. A little bit of is a bonus.
1: I was gonna say, like here in Wyoming, you know, with trout and walleye and different things that we have here. My go-to when things get really hard is like a marabou jig, like an 8th eighth-ounce, eighth-ounce marabou jig. You know, with maybe oh, a, like a, <laughs> yeah, with maybe like a small little plastic off the back. You know, but like yeah. when things get hard, it doesn't matter whether it's ninety degrees out or ten degrees out. I'll, I'll bust that out. I can typically catch something, you know, it's kind of like a confidence thing, you know. Um, but I think every angler has kind of one of those things that they kind of default back to because it's like, I was telling my son last night, he was looking at some of my marabou jigs and he's like, dad, are these any good, you know, and of course I put them in his box. So I'm like, well, yeah, I put them in your box, kid, <laughs> you know, but he's like, how effective are these, are these, you know, a really good bait? And I said, kid, you can use that marabou jig all year long in this state and catch fish. And he's like, man, that's pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's, it's kind of fun to have those confidence baits. I want to kind of go back to something you were talking about you growing up in Nebraska, so Nebraska, obviously with all the different fishing opportunities, hunting opportunities, I know it's fun to kind of go out and kind of have your favorite fish growing up. And you talked about Northern Pike was Northern Pike kind of the impetus that kind of got you hooked onto muskies later on.
2: Absolutely. Yep. I loved when I, I mean, when I, I have pictures of me holding big pike when I was probably four or five years old that I caught. I mean, that was that in my mind, that was like the biggest, baddest freshwater predator had rows of teeth. I mean I, like I said, I love the snakes, and the spiders and the, you know, the amphibians and I was always bringing stuff home, you know, putting them in the terrariums that we had here. And I thought that that fish was by far the coolest fish in the water. And that's what I wanted to catch because it was, it was super aggressive you know just come shooting through these this cabbage fields and they fought so hard and i loved it i mean i was a, I was a kid you know I had, I had add and the attention span of like something like this so pike fishing and being able to like cast these big daredevil spoons and these red eye baits you know And i was a kid i loved it i'd cast for hours and hours and hours and hours just waiting for that one bite you know and That did open the door, unfortunately, to muskie fishing um, and that, you know, another story, (laughs) but yeah, it's, um, uh, pike fishing was, and in particular, the older I got, I really got into the trophy pike fishing and Nebraska, you know, you mentioned Merritt, that Valentine refuge before they had to redo all those lakes was some of the best trophy pike fishing in, in the country. And a lot of people didn't know that. It was in the middle of nowhere. And I would throw my kayak on top of my old SUV and make the five and a half, six hour drive out there and just sleep in my, in my vehicle for a couple of days and literally fish up there sunup to sundown for those trophy pike. And I, I would, I mean, that was like my, that was my refuge. It was literally the Valentine refuge. It was my refuge too. I'd go out there by myself and fish for days on end for these giant, you know, I caught so many 40, 41, 42 inch pike out there that you know it's unreal and throwing big baits you know fishing for them like how i want to fish for them throwing big poseidons and medusas big rubber baits you know and these lakes that were maybe maxed out at like five feet deep so yeah <laughs> very uh that was definitely before and now it's not like that anymore unfortunately you know, they had the carp got into all of them and that kind of ruined it. Uh, Sadly, the game parks had to kill them all off and kind of start from scratch. But for a while there, for a few years, those were the the glory years for pike fishing there.
1: Yep. There's one end of Merritt that has a whole bunch of like trees in the water. And Mm -hmm. I've fished around there. It's called Boardman. And uh, there's, there's crappie, which is fun. And then of course, sitting right off at those structure points are these massive, muskies and northern pike and it's so much fun yeah. to go in there with a top water or like you talked about maybe one of those big rubber baits or you know big bigger suspending bait or jerk bait and catch those fish i mean that is to me that's like the most exciting thing in the world which is probably why god put me in wyoming because i would do that every single day if i didn't live in wyoming because uh, we just don't have you know we don't have access to that but it is cool to hear about it. And you now, I mean, you spend a lot of time on the East coast and a lot of people don't realize that the muskie fishing in Tennessee, Kentucky, some of these places is just out of this world. And there's some absolute giants out there. So can you tell us just a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, that's actually why I chose to move out there. Well, two reasons. One, it was more central for my a lot of my tournaments. You know, We have a lot of tournaments and Tennessee, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, Texas, Louisiana. And so that was kind of a really good center point for, the, for bass fishing and for what I do for a living now. But also, selfishly, I chose a location that was within an hour of four or five of some of my favorite muskie holes out there. And I started, you know, I grew up fishing for lake muskies, and I've done a lot of lake muskies fishing. But when I started river muskie fishing about, you know, over a decade ago now, there that's all i want to do all i want to do you know it's a a whole different ball game going after river fish they fight harder they're meaner you know they're because they're in current all day so i really have a deep adoration for the river fish plus you know these rivers out here are pretty small they're very remote they don't get a lot of traffic and i fish you know pennsylvania kentucky north carolina west virginia tennessee virginia all of those and everything in between. And of uh, there's, you know, probably 15 to 20 rivers that I fish in those states that I absolutely love. And they're gorgeous. You know, they're really, really pretty. They're perfect for a kayak. And it's, uh, it's just fascinating that these, these big fish live in these little rivers and there's so many of them. And it's, it's literally like an adventure for me. I don't know if y'all saw my recent little video I did, but I drug up, you know, hundreds of yards of shoals on this river that is extremely difficult to access. You can't get a, can't get a jet boat on it. It's really low right now. And it's, it's very wild. I mean, it's got some massive, massive rapids, but the water was slow. So I literally took a super white kayak and drug like two miles up to these pools I found on Google earth and had a lot of success because these fish probably hadn't seen a bait, you know, in a long time. So I, I just love doing stuff like that.
0: So one question I have, when you are doing stuff like that, what are some safety precautions people should think about when they're kayak fishing, whether they're in a tournament or just going out for a weekend for fun?
2: Situational awareness, for sure. Um, for the for that, I mean, I'm talking from a female perspective too, um, just if you're at, you know, because down in the southeast, there's a lot of crime that happens at boat ramps. And I know you're probably talking about just kayak safety as well, but general safety terms, situational awareness, you know, I, I really think that caring is when you can is a really good idea. Um, and just kind of being aware of where you are. I also think, you know, having a PFD is very important. Letting somebody know where you are. A lot of the places I fish, there's no cell phone, research, cell phone service. So, and I do a lot of fishing by myself. Um, I always, if, if my, uh, my boyfriend lives in Texas. So if I'm out there musky fishing, he's deer hunting, which he's doing right now. We have our separate things kind of in the fall. Sometimes I'll always try to you know, let somebody, let him know where I am, let him know when I get off the water, but you know, having a PFD, having people know where you're going and what time you expect to kind of be back is always a really good idea. And if you can bring a friend with you, it's always smart, you know,
1: kayak fishing can be dangerous. My fishing mentor, he had bone cancer. And a few years ago, he went tiger muskie fishing by himself and he took out his kayak and he's he was tough as nails. He passed away just a little over a year ago. But the guy was tough as nails. I mean, just was riddled with cancer, but just loved muskies and loved tiger muskies and loved fishing. And he took his kayak out and he had his his PFD on, thank goodness, or he would have died. But he was pulling up to a spot and trying to pull himself with some you know, some of the willows next to the shoreline so he could go and pull himself up and get out and ended up tipping over and bone cancer makes your bones weak. And what happened was it snapped his femur. Um, the, the sidewall of the, of the kayak. Cause he had one that you sit inside and, um, oh,
2: anyway, God. yeah, yeah,
1: I didn't know where he had gone. Um, and he lived, uh, next door to me, um, with some family and, um, they said, Hey, Danny didn't come home last night and <laughs> this was the next day. Oh, right? God. And so I went out there and, and we ended up finding him. He had, his body temp was super, super low, like past hypothermic. Like he wasn't even shaking anymore, but we were able to get him out of there and he, he survived the ordeal. But I'll tell you what, man, it's that, that personal flotation device. If he hadn't had it, he would have drowned just because of the broken femur. Yeah.
2: And a lot of people don't understand that. You know, I see a lot of the people on social media out there kayak fishing without a PFD because it, it looks like a lot of people, especially women, you know, I've talked to some of the gals out there that, you know, it, it is not very flattering wearing a PFD and i try really hard to you know explain to them that one if you do want to get any type of you know have your photos shared by any major kayak company or anything they're not going to share something if you're not advocating for safety on the water and two it it really does save lives you know even if i'm a fantastic swimmer, i used to be a fantastic swimmer <laughs> and you know i I, I'm pretty stubborn too, but even I'm wearing a PFD and it doesn't matter if you're fishing a super shallow river because freak accidents just happen. So, you know, it's just like the seatbelt thing, you know, just, just do it. Yeah. just Do it.
1: No, I think that's really great advice. How else? So when, if you were to tell somebody who is interested in kayak angling, these are the basic things that you should have. What is kind of your go-to list? Cause I'm sure you get this question a lot, but it's like, there there's more and more people getting into kayak angling every day. So, what are some of the basic necessities that someone has to have to get into the sport?
2: I mean, having a having a good I always tell people are at right the bat, you know, have a good kayak. Have if if you're if you're I understand a lot of us are on a budget right now because things are economically, you know, a little tough, but I would always I always tell people if you can't make sure you're going to get a kayak that you're comfortable in first. So don't go and buy the $400, $500, you know, big box store kayak, wait a little bit, save up a little bit more money and get something. You know, I I think to get a really good kayak, you can get one for eight or $900 to $1,000. Start there first because the the level of comfort and safety and stability goes up exponentially when you kind of get into that price point. So I always tell people rather than go and waste $500, something that you're probably not going to enjoy as much. Just wait, save up a little bit of money, you know, borrow someone that has it, make sure you're demoing, demoing, demoing. So getting the right kayak first to make sure you're going to enjoy your experience is huge. Again, we talked about having a PFD, uh, having, uh, just, you know, just the basic stuff, like a headlamp, a 360 light that you have on for just for general safety so people can see you. Um, I'm trying to think of what else, you know, good, good cold weather gear is always important. You know, anything in the elements. Uh, accessories for kayaks, you know, having a good crate for your tackle. So it's easy to transport something from your truck to the kayak and have all your gear and tackle kind of in line is also important. A good storage system. That's, that's kind of the really basic stuff that I think is important for people to have a comfortable PFD. You know, I love the inflatable ones. They work great for me. So you just, you just really want to set yourself up to have the, the best experience out there.
0: I would agree on the inflatable PFD hunting or fishing. I mean, we were on Kodiak doing that hunt this spring with my dad, grizzly bear, and he had an inflatable and I was wearing just a regular PFD and in and out of the boat, you know, shore, shore hunting for grizzly bears. He's, he's got a little inflatable PFD. He can be mobile and I've got this big, I'm trying to put it over my coat and buckle it up. And it's, it's just cumbersome trying to get trying to work lines or whatever. I imagine trying to throw a fish and pole in a kayak with a full size BFD would be a little bit annoying all day if you're trying to paddle. So I do have a question tournament related. What are you looking for structure wise? Say you're going to a new reservoir for a tournament you've never been to. You know, if you're using, I imagine you're using satellite imagery. What are some of the key points you're going to pick out and say, Hey, I'm going to try these places first in a tournament on a body of water?
2: Well, you know, it really depends on the time of year. The time of year dictates where those fish are, are going to be uh, utilizing. You know, where where are they? Are they on spawning flats right now? Are they, you know, moving offshore to their summer? It really depends on time of year. So, um, you know, if I were looking at something in the spring, you know, and it depends on where you're at in the country too. Like, you know, down, down south in the spring, I look for Areas that have a lot of cover, you know, big spawning flats, close to, you know, areas of channel swings and just areas that fish can stage and kind of hold to before they move up to spawn. That way, if something happens, a big cold snap, I look for areas that have a lot of diversity that fish can pull back to. I look for a lot of, you know, just visual cover, grass in the water, patches of grass. You can usually find that on Google Earth or old imagery, wood, you know, just a lot of docks uh, crappie beds, you know, just all kinds of random structure or just different things that give me uh, the potential for a point A, B and C. I look for areas that have, I like to know what my shallow fish are doing, what my suspended fish are doing, what my deep fish are doing. And I like to find an area that can cater to all of that if possible.
1: that's why I tell people like when they're looking at a a particular place to fish is how many options does that spot give you, you know, and, and what, (laughs) That's uh, awesome. That
0: that is cool. <laughs> I, I'm glad you know it's happened here more than once. Uh, <laughs> it just, dude, what was the question? I don't know.
1: <laughs> Talking uh, about spots.
0: <laughs> Christine will be back momentarily. Everybody, yeah. we've had uh, technical difficulties. Just listen
1: to this wonderful uh, elevator music while yeah. we. Live. <laughs> it happens, man. I've knocked over a few. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: oh yeah, I was like, I oh, see it, like, we're gone. Are we going somewhere? <laughs>
1: Maybe that'll make our blooper reel for the year.
0: I think it should. I think it should.
1: Oh, here she is. Uh, well, you're back.
2: The cat, the cat walked over this. My parents the cat walked over the thing and pulled my laptop
1: down. Is that, is that like the
0: dog ate my homework?
1: <laughs> oh my I, I think you just Did made. You it, yeah, I think you made the uh Ragcast blooper reel for the year. That was pretty fun.
2: You can down on me or anything all the
1: time. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was awesome. Anyway, no, I was just saying is it's, it's really important to look for spots that give you multiple options, right? So if you know that that structure is going to hold that fish for that particular time of year, How many different options does that spot give you? Are you going to be able to fish? You know, maybe it's a top water area. Maybe it's a buzz bait area. Like you were talking about, right? Maybe that's what you want, but is there a jig spot off of that, you know, a suspended crank spot, it just depends on, you know, kind of what it gives you, but talk about like throughout the year, especially bass fishing, what does the game plan look like? season to season because it changes, right? Like the fish aren't always going to be up shallow and they're not always going to be out deep. So what does that look like as you go throughout the season?
2: Yeah. I mean, well, again, it's, I fish such a, a diverse array of lakes. So it really, you've got your blueback herring lakes that operate very differently from Florida lakes to texas lakes to your bull lakes up north and even your river system lakes. so it's it does it change it changes a lot you know like you're well because you're right yeah it's not if you ask me a lake i could tell you right now like sure. yeah so this is how they're this is where they move from here to here to here this is how this is what they're going to relate to they're going to you know move up to these you know clay banks on logan martin to spawn then they're going to pull off and go here or they're going to be on blueback herring, you know, this time of year moving out and, or in Florida, you know, they're going to be on shell and they're going to move up and then they're going to pull off and kind of hang out to this type of stuff. Um, it, you know, bass are, are always, but there's something like for the bass you can catch them shallow all year, all year long. So it all year long. I mean, some of the big fish down, you know, Chickamauga, for example, I can fish shallow in Chickamauga from February through November. Mm-hmm. I can catch them in less than water. So it, you know, it really just depends on what fishery you're on and kind of where you're at in the country. You know, your, your typical bass fishing is they're you know, they're going to pull up, they're going to pull up and move shallow to spawn. They're going to pull back out post-spawn. They'll hang around for a few weeks on certain bodies of water. And then they're going to move out to their summer haunts on the ledges or, you know, a lot on the Tennessee river that I fish a lot. That's kind of a big summer pattern. And then in the fall, they're going to be pushed up creeks, finding bait balls, shad, really keen in on that, that fall feed. That's kind of a very bass fishing one-on-one thought, but mm. like I said, you really can't, you really can't box that in for bass fishing because it, it doesn't apply to all over the country. So, yeah. it, you know,
1: I'm glad you brought that up because it is really unique depending on the body of water you're in because you know, forage is what matters, right? For, for a lot of these fish, cause they're hungry. And so I like, I know here in Wyoming, you know, our main body of water here is Boyson reservoir. And you can find the walleyes when you can find the emerald shiners. If you can find those, you're going to find the walleyes because they're following those things around. I mean, they're nomadic. They're moving all the time. But that might change if you go to, like, say, a Glendo Reservoir, which has shad, you know, because the shad dictate that. And so it, the the forage is such a huge piece, and I'm sure that factors in, like, when you're going somewhere. Because, like, for example, going back to Merritt, there were so many alewives in that thing. I mean, we were fishing stuff that looked like alewives because it worked. And I mean, you would see the pike and, and the muskies coming in and just crushing these alewives, you know, smack, smacking them up against shore, you know, coming in and charging them and, and hitting them. So, you know, it's really important to understand the forage in the different bodies of water because you may be in Texas one week and maybe in Kentucky the next, right? And so there, there's a huge difference.
2: Yeah. And also kind of know what's going on in your area because, you know, just because, like for example, you know, I'm I'll be fishing a blueback herring lake. Well there's there could be a certain area of lake where there's my fish are really keyed in on brim, you know, or or there's crawfish eaters. There's there's more than one type of forage in a lot of these lakes and some parts of the lakes cater to different types of forage too. I found that, you know, where you can be on a really good shad spawn somewhere, but then, you know, the brim are up spawning in one part of the lake and you're crushing them on, you know, post spawn kind of brim feeders. So it you really I think you really need to keep a very open mind and not, you know, I, that's what I try to do. I hear a lot of doc talk and everywhere I go, people, you know, at tackle shops, they'll try to just tell you about what this lake is known for, what what's going on. I don't like to hear any of that. You know, I really don't. I want to keep an absolute open mind and go in there and start to put puzzle pieces together on my own. So I can kind of key in on what's going on in my area, because if someone's telling me they're crushing them on, uh, Underspins down the May Lakes, spin it over cane poles. But I, what I'm seeing are, you know, big winning largemouth up shallow feeding on brim. You know, I that's going to mess with my head, you know. And even though that, and I actually won a tournament on Hartwell up in the river, flipping. I mean, flipping buck brush on Hartwell when the bite was supposed to be won offshore cane poles. And that's where everybody was. I was the only person that picked up a flipping stick and went up in the river and I smashed them. But no one was like, are you, like?" everybody was shocked that that's how, that's what I did. You know, I threw a big spinnerbait in the morning and then I started flipping buck brush. And if I would have listened to people saying that the beast tournaments are always won on Hartwell this time of year out there flipping you know, on these deep cane piles, because it's, it's late summer, they're going to be deep. But I, and they're going to be big spots big spots and a couple of big lone largemouth. You know, so I really think it's so important not to put these lakes in a box and just look at it's good to know the information and good to know the history of the lakes. And I always look at past tournaments and kind of what you know, what it takes to win there, what they've got going on. I wanna know the forage. I want to know what's popular. But I also want to go out there and just start fishing it on my own in my way. Because my way, the way I fish is gonna put me in a more confident spot than doing what everybody else is doing. If that makes
1: sense. Mm-hmm. No, it totally makes sense because even Boyston reservoir is an example. I mean, you brought up like crawfish. That's a very popular forage for the South end of the reservoir at certain times a year. And then the North side of the reservoir certain times a year, but you figure that out by going out there and, and fishing. Right. And to your point, kind of having that open mind, how do you put together that game plan though of, Figuring that out. I mean you talked about forward-facing sonar. I don't have one yet But I know a lot of guys that do they really utilize that quite a bit They spend a lot of time just driving around looking before they do anything Um, So how do you kind of formulate and put together that game plan?
2: That's what I do too. I do a lot of I don't do a lot of actual fishing in practice I do a lot of cruising around and graphing and just physically looking at areas like I said, if I, if I get to an area, and I like, I don't know, I just have this intuition that if I get into an area and it just feels kind of right, you know, I might make a couple of casts, if I catch a good one, then I'll know, you know, this is where I want to fish. If it's got bait, you know, if it's I can kind of understand why the fish are there and I feel like I understand why they're there, then I'll feel very confident in that area. I do a lot of graphing. I use a lot of side scans. I do use forward-facing sonar, you know, quite a bit in certain situations and then a little bit less in others. So I need to get better at incorporating it down south um but i do use it pretty exclusively up north and it, it does make a huge difference um but yeah I, I do a lot of looking a lot of covering water a lot of eliminating water i feel like the more of the lake i can see the more i can kind of get an idea of of how it all is setting up and what's going on where yeah
1: Elimination of water is almost as important as identifying the right piece of water. Right, one hundred (laughs) percent. Knowing where not to
0: go um, in hunting is is a big part of the game. So, a question I have is: You like to turkey hunt? What are some skills that transition from bass fishing, pike fishing, to turkey hunting, or from turkey hunting back to tournament fishing? What are What are some of those skills that work both on and off the water? Well,
2: I'm I'm so my boyfriend gives me a hard time about this because I've Back, you know, I, I did a lot of turkey hunting way back in the day, uh, by myself, all with a bow. And I took a frame pack and put a, double uh, double blind in my frame pack, clipped a couple decoys, taped of decoys on it. And I would do kind of just what I do bass fishing is I would put the diaphragm call in. I carry my bow in my hand. I had my blind and my decoys on my pack and I just walk cornrows or just, you know, tree lines and, and ditches and, um, all these things, just calling and calling and calling you know, before uh sun came up until I found them and then I'd set up and wait for a while. Or I keep, I I'd cover a lot of water and I could throw or water. I'd cover a lot of ground <laughs> and walk a lot until I'd get a bird to gobble at me. And then I'd throw that blind up real quick and wait, you know, and try to get that bird in. Uh, my boyfriend says now those, those back when I hunted, those birds weren't as pressured and it, it was a lot easier. Cause I was like, man, I'd tag out in a weekend, you know, <laughs> back when I used to hunt. And now we've done a lot of, uh, We've done a lot of hunting in like Oklahoma and we went up to Washington this year to turkey hunt, but we were there at the last weekend of the season. And uh those hill country birds are an entirely different animal than uh what I was used to hunting in the Midwest. So it was a it was a little now, I haven't really tried as hard. And my boyfriend got his very first one um out in South Carolina on public land. Doing a lot of he is a he is a die hard, um, very hard worker when it comes to hunting, and but he does it with a shotgun. And I'm just like I'm a big I'm a big time bow hunting person. I've never killed a turkey with a shotgun. I've killed so many with my bow. So I don't you know he he says in, in the hill hill country your success with a bow is just so small and it's just not really ideal. And I've heard that from a lot of people. I don't know. But yeah, that was my strategy back home, at least in the Midwest, where it's a lot of flat ground and you've got a lot of draws. And I just walk along them and walk the field lines calling until I heard one. And then I throw my blind up and throw it, you know, just a Jake decoy out there and wait, you know, be real patient. And again, eliminating area, finding, finding sign, you know, finding where the, put the birds to bed. That's always a big thing. If you can roost them, obviously it's, it's huge. Um, but if I can, I always look for areas of sign where they're using, where they have food, where they have water. Nebraska's a little easier because every dang cornfield is a giant food plot. So uh, you just look for areas that you look for roost trees. You know, you look where they're going to be coming to and from. You look for their strutting areas, and same, it's it's almost a, very similar to how you would attack a lake looking for bass.
1: I like that answer. She's got this figured out, <laughs> but I mean,
2: I don't know. I don't know if I figured it out. It's been a, it's been a minute. I, I didn't shoot a bird this year. I, we tried in, in Washington. I actually got really close to one, to one of them, but it was, I, I want to probably try to pick it up again. It's been several years since I've really went hard and on turkey hunting. I just did it. I did it for so many years in a row, but now the fishing thing's really been pretty time consuming for me. And unfortunately you guys probably can relate to this. You know, our, our best time is to be on the water are also the best times to hunt Amen so to it's that. <laughs> really hard to do both and i think to hunt especially you have to like to deer hunt for example the reason i haven't deer hunted is that you have the prep work in that the scouting and all the stuff you have to do in the off season i don't have time for that yep. you know i just don't not with how how hard i'm going on the fishing side of things so mm-hmm. it's really tough for me to be serious about it
0: You've touched on one thing that I've learned, and that's a person, a sportsman needs to have kind of two main hobbies. And the the tertiary hobby, the second one to your primary one, needs to be the off-season, right? So take example, if I was going to be a pike fisherman, maybe my off-season is be coyote hunter. But you can't be yeah. a big-time Big game hunter and big fish chaser and trapper and fly My fisherman name. and you, yeah. you you kinda gotta focus on a species, a season. And maybe like you said, you were really big into turkey hunting, now you're really big into <laughs> chasing northerns
1: and well, well here's the thing with Christine. So she's she's a tournament bass angler, but she's also a musky nut. Those are two main things right there. Like they're Because they take so much time and they take so much effort (laughs) to do both of those. It's like, I look at you and I'm like, wow, I don't know how you're able to get all of that done. Just, just even just those two things, because I mean, it takes so much time. Like for me, it's, it's very much trout and walleye because that's what I have available. Right. Right. Do i wish it was muskies yes but i mean i'm a long ways from any good muskie fishing but still it's like you do what's available to you and so i do want to touch on a couple other things before we wrap up this podcast so there there were some things that i had to ask i was like all right if i'm gonna have her on the podcast i gotta ask this so you only can pick one we're gonna do uh, we're gonna do a little game here but you can only pick one for each of these questions so
2: you i don't know. like when picking one
1: i know i know <laughs> i know i hate it too but you can do this but if you were to pick your favorite way and favorite bait to go out and pursue muskies you know your favorite time of year what time of year what type of bait are you using to pursue muskies what's your favorite
2: i love fishing this this time of year is my favorite for muskies i love fishing the new moon in november um specifically those are the late fall fish because a lot of people kind of lay off of them and they're, they're in the woods or they're watching their football or foosball or whatever <laughs> they're doing. I got all the water to myself. So I love, I'm a big November musky girl, uh, no, October, November, December, January, February, but November probably specifically. And I do love the, you know, pre-spawn stuff too, but I love throwing uh, big medusas, you know, big rubber. I, I love that bite so much, um, you know, big, big swim baits, big Poseidons. That's probably one of my favorite ways to fish, um, for them. Awesome. And you know, the rivers, you, you can sight fish them. And a lot of people have a lot of fun with that. I don't like that. I like to be completely taken by surprise. I want them to come. I want to see them coming out, you know, following my bait 15, 20 feet out. And then I want to get them on the eight. You know, that's, yep. that's pretty ideal. Very, very gratifying for me.
1: I also like fishing them at night when you hear the explosion and feel the yank on the rod. That's pretty exciting.
2: Oh my too. gosh. So I've never done that. I've always wanted to, but I'm kind of nervous. I'm I'm a hot mess when it comes to muskie fishing. Just during the day, I can't even imagine what that <laughs> would be for at night. So I'm almost a little bit. I've got some trepidations there.
1: <laughs> it's it's exciting. I I did that uh, years ago for tiger muskies in Utah, where you're throwing big baits at night and. You just hear this gigantic, it sounds like you fall in the lake and <laughs> these things come up I and smack. I for uh,
2: tiger muskie in Utah too.
1: Yeah, it is the, I would say it's Utah cool. has the best tiger muskie fishing anywhere. Um, but yeah. They've
2: got the world record, I'm pretty
1: sure. Yeah. the So my fishing mentor, he, he caught one at night that was the biggest that I've ever seen. And I'm not going to say where he caught it, but anyway, it was in November uh so same time of year but it was 50 and a half inches long it's the biggest one i've ever seen it was i, I, I don't even know what the girth was on it it was it was sick it was a gallon bucket Yeah, it was fish. it was massive but anyway all right next question same thing for bass any time of year any time of bait what are your favorite what's your favorite way to catch bass
2: my favorite can, is this all that all black bass small mouth large mouth
1: yes just bass in general
2: Okay, so I love I love late summer wake baits for smallmouth and current.
1: Ooh. Big
2: wake. I'm talking big wake bait.
1: That sounds fun.
2: Big wake bait Yeah, that's my favorite bite, hands down.
1: See, that's one of the things. I don't have access to that kind of situation because we don't have that here in Wyoming. I'm going to have to come out and do some of that. All right, next one is if you were to catch and eat any fish and have it prepared any way that you wanted and i know you grew up like us eating fish what is your all-time favorite fish to eat and how is it prepared
2: all-time fish since you didn't specify fresh or salt i'm gonna say uh tuna ahi tuna rare <sighs> rare uh, is like my if i could have that every single day but i also i love walleye i mean you can't get much better than like perch or walleye too but ahi tuna that's it
0: that sounds really good right now. now you know the old adage uh, and joke. You, you'll you get a fisherman to give you trout or you'll get a fisherman to give you salmon. They ain't giving you halibut or walleye. <laughs> There's no halibut no. or walleye in my freezer. Yeah, but if you'd like some rainbow trout or some salmon, <laughs> I'm sure I can find some. <laughs>
2: Well, see, I am a sucker for salmon too, but I, I hear that certain types of salmon
1: taste better than others. other. A hundred That's true. So David lived in Alaska, yeah. so he can tell you all about that. But um, all right. So the next one, and this is the last one. So if you were to go out and get any big game animal, same question, how would, what, what kind of animal would you want to have to eat? And how are we, how, how are we harvesting it? Yeah. What, how, what how are we going to go get it? Yeah. That's a good part to add to this. And then how are you going to prepare that?
2: Oh my gosh. You guys, I'm, I'm not a, I i am am not the the cook or the chef here in my family. I, I, I hate to admit it. I can make a really mean sandwich, but that's about my extent. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'll tell you how I like to eat it. And I'm not going to tell you how I like to prepare that's it. That's fine. Um, I, so for, as far as like big game, I loved hunting for antelope, but honestly, my dream hunt, uh, and this is going to sound, I mean, you guys probably do a ton of this where you're at, but I've always wanted to do a DIY elk hunt pretty bad with my bow uh that's been something for a couple of reasons i just love the backcountry i really like the elk hunting culture you know a red stag would be pretty freaking sweet too but that's that's a little lofty right now i think for my goals i think a, a backcountry elk hunt all diy with my bow would be absolutely amazing and i love elk uh elk is probably one of my favorite wild game um and and everything you know a lot of people for me i'm such just a a, just a freaking meat person i don't need elk chili or elk burgers i just want a freaking tenderloin like i want (laughs) a elk steak like i want i'm just a meat person you know i don't need anything so i don't need you to doctor it up very much i just want the meat like i'm a big natural i love knowing where my food comes from love eating venison and everything else i'm so big on that but elk i know um would provide for dang near probably an entire year. Mm-hmm. And it's good, ugh, such good meat. And so I think that, and, and just hearing them bugle is like hearing a turkey gobble in the morning. You know, it's a chill through your spine. It's like the, the good old outdoors feeling that every outdoorsman are, just lives for. So I think if I were hunting, act, cause I've never actually hunted one, but I think if we were actively hunting for one, just hearing them bugle, I don't, I think I'd lose my dang mind. And it's just one of those, one of these days I'm going to do it, but I got to get in way better shape. Or...
0: <laughs> when a, when a thousand pound animal comes charging at you to kill you, it's uh, it's just a different,
2: it's a rush, right?
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> people say Turkey hunting and elk hunting are similar. They, there are some aspects where, yeah, getting on a, a flock with a Tom and getting on a herd with a bull. There are some tactics that transition, but no, you're, you're talking a 20 pound bird or a thousand pound elk and I'll take elk all day. Over. <laughs> the only reason I turkey hunt, it's the spring and there's nothing else to do. If there was turkey season, elk season lined up together, I'd never hunt another turkey as long as I live.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think the elk thing, the only thing that I, I, you know, I always get interested in is how the the idea of packing them out and, and grizzly and wolf country and mm-hmm. if that, you know that does sound that does sound a little gnarly sometimes. I've heard some stories on that. I'm sure you have to take extra precautions and yep. and all of that. As well,
1: that's our neck of the woods. Uh, we are literally in the heart of grizzly country right here. In fact. David and I and my oldest daughter are going to go elk hunting here soon. And I'm hoping that the Grizzlies are in bed because, you know, it's her first elk hunt. She's 14 and uh, we're, we're hoping we don't have to deal with that. But, yeah, we absolutely have to take extra precautions because we.
2: Have you guys had any scary calls with them in the past? Uh, oh, yeah. Or have you Last
1: month. David and I both have had, Oh some. my god! <laughs> yes. yes, there's, there's a ton of them. In fact, we've got some episodes on grizzly bears. I'll have to, I'll, I'll send them to you so you can listen to them. Cause they're yeah, super interesting, but yeah, grizzlies are, they're a concern. They're, they're a factor, but. You are of a huge concern in the elk species, yeah. sp- particularly because
0: like a mule deer, if you've got a, uh, a partner, he can take half, you take half and you leave. You can't do that with an elk no and so you need to have a little you know you put a turkey on the ground you throw it over your shoulder you grab your blind and you walk out of there
2: exactly an elk is an entirely different animal and that's several trips if i'm not mistaken oh, right yeah.
0: oh yeah well that's we we cheat around here and have some horses <laughs> and we will take the horses with us and we'll walk around and find the elk harvest the elk, put it on the horses and leave why because the grizzlies are pretty good at vacuuming up everything that's left, and they're pretty good at getting there almost before you sometimes. Pretty
1: quick, yeah. You'll have to come to Wyoming, and you'll have to check it out, and maybe you can do one of those elk hunts out here, because it is pretty awesome. I would love that. It's a, it's a different place, but for people who want to check out what you're doing, because I mean, most of our audience is here out in the West and maybe they're not familiar with what you're doing, but tell people how they can find you and follow you and kind of see what's going on with uh, your tournament fishing.
2: Sure. So I put all my tournament recaps and all my fishing stuff on my YouTube. It's Christine Fisher, I think. My Instagram is Midwest Fisher Gal. And then I've got a Facebook page under Christine Fisher as well.
1: Yeah. So go check her out. She's doing lots of cool stuff. You inspire me. I I think it's really cool to watch, you know, you you put on some of those videos with some of those, what I call skip casting (laughs) underneath brush. And she's the real deal. Like she can, she can cast, she can catch everything that swims. And so I really want to say thank you. Now, I want to say thank you just because, I mean, you are out there inspiring these young ladies and these other fishermen. And I I just think that that is what it's all about. So thank you for doing that and being such a great ambassador for the sport and just being that positive influence in the fishing industry. So thank you for doing that. What's on the horizon in the future? What's what's next? What's coming up that you're looking forward to doing
0: besides the red stag and the elk?
2: (laughs) First of all, getting my wrist. Healed up, so I can get back out there. This is killing me right now. I've only it's only been day two, and I'm going a little stir crazy. But uh, my first tournament kicks off at the end of January. It's always down in Florida. I love going down there in January to kick things off. You know, with the off season for us, I'm musky fishing usually in the off season. I'm done now for a good month and a half, but I might be able to get a little bit more musky fishing in in January. I'm probably going to go do some some big bass fishing in Texas before I head down to Florida. And try to get a pb knocked out and work on some of my electronics fishing but you know for me it's not usually one thing i look forward to it's, it's just the, the whole next year you know it's a whole new a whole new year and a lot of opportunities and chances to be better and to do better and to, like you said you know try to be the best role model for young women especially because there's a there's not always a lot of that out there as far as you know conservative values anymore so I try really hard to uh, show women that we can still do it in a very, you know, wholesome way and with respect.
1: And that's something that David and I care a lot about. So I, I think
0: all all people should realize this that uh, especially the Instagram famous people, you're going to be way more appreciated if you're out there wholesomely producing protein and and doing it that way than just some silly little TikTok reel of some kind. What's one? youtube blooper reel that you're glad the cameras weren't on to capture
1: that <laughs> i, I want to know kayak
0: a kayak blooper fishing tournament story that you're like oh i can't believe i did that
2: or it wasn't on
0: or maybe it was on and we all can go watch it and, and get a good laugh <laughs> it
2: doesn't oh yeah well there's i can think of one right now that was on and it went it did go viral uh we were up on a, a just a fun fishing trip i've got a lot of you know good group of guy friends that you know, travel and, and fish kind of full time too. And so we just went and did a big friends vacation up in northern Wisconsin. And we were pretty goofy. Like we're all a bunch of adult kids. And so we were playing frisbee out on the water on our kayaks. And my buddy Cody was like, Christine, you know, tor- get the torpedo going full blast. I put my torpedo motor on at six miles an hour and I'm standing up as it's moving like six miles to six, six and a half miles an hour. And he throws the frisbee. And like leads me. I reached up to get it and completely miss it and fall off my kayak. And I wasn't wearing my kill switch because I had to stand up. <laughs> so I'm in the water. My life said I could explode. And the kayak is just doing circles <laughs> like this. Like, I saw that it, it was, I mean, I yeah, it was so funny and so stupid. But. And then I'm trying to. You see it coming right at me. I grab onto it. I'm trying to get the get the kill switch (laughs) taken off. And I mean, you see them coming after it, trying to get it. It it was absolute chaos. And I'm soaking wet. We are just dying laughing. Um, That was one of the funniest things of the whole year.
0: (laughs) That's well, awesome. Well, I'll let you in on it. It will be launched here shortly, but I have a, I have a new one and my buddy got me so good and I, I'll never be able to, to one up him on this one. They came up to help me on a deer hunt this fall and I had harvested a grouse with my chest rig pistol earlier in the day and we went home. We're going to cook it. He was driving a four-wheeler behind me and he was like five minutes behind me getting to the camp and I'm like, what's going on? I had put some of my gear in his four wheeler up at the very top glassing point because I had two people in mine and we were loaded. So he said when he got back and he's five minutes late and I, I couldn't quite figure that. Out. He's like, "Hey, don't forget you're gonna leave your jacket in my in my little uh oh he's got a back tackle box on the back of the four wheeler." So I walk over and. I happen to notice the the third person is standing there with the phone out, videoing me, and I yeah. kind of looked at him. But he takes a lot of photos of me for social media and stuff. So I look, like, must be a. I look at the background, I look back at him. I'm like, he must be taking a social media picture. I don't know. <laughs> I open the hatch on this four wheeler, and a grouse flies out in my face. <laughs> So the guy had been riding behind me, and this grouse How runs out of the woods.
1: Seen this?
0: <laughs> I have I haven't been prepared to share this until right now. I, I gotta uh, see this. I screamed, might have said a few choice words. It's still PC. <laughs> but the other dead grouse is laying in there with my jacket, and here comes this live grouse, and I come unglued. And I still even <laughs> see in the phone, and they they rolling on the ground laughing about that. So that's awesome. That's funny. <laughs> big tough bearded grizzly man is frightened by grouse. will be the title and it's going to go viral.
1: I would guess. <clears throat> That's, awesome. That's awesome. I can't
2: wait to
1: see that. Well, I would just want to say thanks again for coming on the podcast. I know, like I said, it's been a long time in the making. We got it done and I hope that your wrist heals up really soon and you can you. get back out there after those toothy critters that you and I love dearly. The muskies, they're the best. Um, and, uh, right. hopefully in a few years, you know, we can catch back up with you and see what's new in your world, but I wish you the best of luck out there. So thank you.
2: I appreciate you guys for having me on. I appreciate it. And y'all stay blessed and good luck out there this season.
1: Thanks again for listening to the Radcast Outdoors podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. If so, please go to Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe, share, share and give us a five-star rating which really helps other people find the show you can find all of our shows recipes giveaways videos and much more at ragcastoutdoors.com while you're there please help support the show by purchasing a ragcast outdoors shirt or hat please don't forget to follow us on facebook and instagram we also have a ragcast community on facebook called ragcast nation and we'd love for you to join in the conversation there and of course Please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors.